Redeemer Church, I'm Pastor Dave, and I hope you are having a wonderful Sunday morning. Just a quick reminder, Joey Samara mentioned this in the beginning, if you were here, our next membership class is happening two weeks from today, so October the 8th. We'll meet in this hotel, just out in the back in the Medjulis room, and we'll walk through who we are as a church, what we believe as a church. You'll get to meet uh, elders and leaders, staff in the church. You'll get to meet others who feel new to Redeemer. It's the first step to membership, the first step to serving in our uh, congregation. Doesn't commit you to join, doesn't guarantee you'll join, but please do join us for lunch and then we'll end by six at the latest. So you'll find information on page 11. You can register online. I also want to invite you to something else quite unique, to the second annual UAE Faith and Work Retreat. This is a retreat. This is an overnight uh, retreat, October 20th and October the 21st, here uh, just up north in Ras al-Khaima. And it's 24 hours in studying the book of Daniel, this prophet who exemplified faith in the midst of enormous challenges. It's 24 hours in fellowship with others talking about the challenges that we have in the UAE in our workplaces. It's 24 hours designed to equip you with biblical insights for faithful service at work. It's 24 hours to learn from others in the UAE of how to live a life of faith in the workplace and at the same time have a career in the workplace. So Daniel, it's a great book to study. No better way to talk about what to do in the workplace and to look at the Word of God itself. So we're going to do that. If you currently work, if you're trying to get a job and work, if you're going to work in the future, this retreat is for you. Join us in Rack. You can find information on page 13 in your bulletins. And if finances are a problem, if money is an issue, please come talk to Pastor Chris Moore or to any of us. Just also a note in our members meeting last Sunday afternoon, uh, we voted in as members four new elders. So Prem Sampson, Chris Moore, Hudson Smith, and Samuel Uchukwu. We're super excited about these four new elders. We also reaffirmed Pastor John Butchin. So next Sunday here in our service, we're going to lay hands and officially install these men. And we're thankful for what the, law, the Lord is doing in and through our church. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn in your Bibles, or if you have a bulletin, or even some type of digital device, that's fine as well. But I want to make sure that you have the text in front of you. This is good every week, but today in particular, I'm going to give you an assignment. So you'll need that. You also need a pen or a pencil if you have that. If you're new to reading the Bible, Romans, the, the book we're in, is in the New Testament. So I have my Bible here. The Old Testament is actually about 75% of our Bible. So let me get here. Malachi is the last book before Matthew. So here we go. Uh, you'll see that the, the Old Testament is about 75% of the Bible. The Old Testament, it points to Christ our Savior. Promises were made to God, or promises were made from God to his sinful people that he would deliver them from their sin. And then we have the New Testament. The New is not better than the Old it doesn't replace the old. While divided into 66 different books, it's one story. It's one overarching story of God's glory. It's why one of our seminary professors at the Gulf Theological Seminary, Dr. Adam Brown, says if you're just starting to read the Bible, uh, start with page one. Start with 
Genesis. And as you read from Genesis on through the Old Testament and on through the, the New Testament, you'll see some themes. You'll see various things traced. And if you read the Old Testament and you're going through it, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're more than ready. You're, you're waiting. You're waiting for the Savior. And you're asking, where is he? Where is the Savior? But then there's 400 years of silence there at the end of the Old Testament, and there's nothing. There's nothing until God himself, Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, breaks into the world, not as a superhero with a cape, not as a military messiah, but he's born as a baby. Now, not in exactly the same way we're born, but born, born of a woman, born as a baby, one who had to grow up in this world, just like you and I have had to grow up. And this baby would grow up, and Jesus would have a, and live a perfect life. And rather than throwing a political coup like many expected, he wasn't a military messiah, but a suffering servant. And we read about the suffering servant, we re read about Christ's life in the gospel. So you have the Old Testament, and then starting here in the New Testament, you have four gospels, means good news, and you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you have John. And so that's a chunk of scripture here where we get to see Jesus's life on earth, his life. We see his death. We see his resurrection. So that's a, that's a good chunk here. And then we see the book of Acts. And in Acts, we have the early church. These are the first believers, and they start taking this good news of the gospel to the nations. And so that's a whole a book of the Bible. And then at the end, if we flip all the way to the end, to the last, the 66th book of the Bible, we have Revelation. And in Revelation, we see that Christ is coming back, and he's going to make all things new. And so in between, uh, in between the book of Acts and in between Revelation, you have just a small sliver, but a really, really, really important part of the Bible. Okay, because this part of the Bible, it's, it's known as the letters, or you have the epistles, the teaching. And these letters were written to real churches. They were written to real cities, real people. And it's in this portion of the scriptures that we find ourselves in Romans. This is a letter written by Paul. Paul wrote many of the letters in that section. Peter, James, we have others. But Paul wrote much of it, including the letter to the Romans. Now, Paul didn't start this church. Uh, Paul hasn't even ever visited this church before. But he's writing to them. He's hoping to go to Jerusalem, and then he's hoping to go to Spain. He's hoping for a layover in Rome, a stopover in Rome, where he hopes that they can be of mutual encouragement to them. He's hoping to meet the church to encourage them by each ministering to one another through their spiritual gifts. We saw that in Romans chapter 1. That's his hope. And he hopes that they could partner together in gospel ministry in Spain. And so he's writing this letter to them with that in mind. And in this letter, we've seen that it's the power of the gospel which saves. Romans 1 verse 16. We've seen that we need salvation. Because from verse 18 in chapter 1 on through chapter 3, verse 20, we see that we are condemned. We see this section called condemnation. It means that we have all sinned and we all need salvation. But then in this 
next section, the end of chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, it's labeled justification, which means that we're declared righteous. Okay, if you haven't found Romans, open there up to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. You'll see Acts, and then you'll find Romans. It's also in the bulletin. And you'll see throughout the Bible, maybe you're new to reading the Bible, as you flip through the pages, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the little numbers are the verse numbers. Now, these aren't inspired by God, but they are helpful for us in finding our place in the Scriptures. So today we're in Romans 5, so that's the, you'll find the big 5 and then the small 6, and we'll be looking at verses 6 on through 11, which were just read for us just a few moments ago. And I have two points today. Again, just two short points. Number one, we're going to see what's true of us. As we look through these verses, we're going to see several things that are true of us. And then number two, we're going to see what God has done for us. So what's true of us, and then we'll see what God has done for us. So if you're taking notes, those are our two points. And we're going to do something a little different this morning. I want you to do some observation of the text for yourselves. I want you to look at the book. I want you to look at the text. Maybe you did this in your family Bible reading this week, or maybe in your own devotions in preparation for the service. Most of our community groups walk through these verses, so maybe you wrestled with them in community. But I, I want you, along with all of us, even if you've done that, to do a short Bible study this morning on your own. So have your Bible open, have your bulletin open, have your digital device open. Tweens, kids, teens, all of us, I want all of us to do that. So you need a pen, you need a pencil. It's not going to take long. But what I'm going to have you do here in just a second is just to read through the text again to yourself by yourself. So you want to have these six verses in front of you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to do two things. First, I want you to underline, and you can even start doing it now, I want you to underline what's true of us in the passage. I want you to underline what Paul says is true of all of us in this passage. So you're going to make some underlines, okay? And then two, I want you to circle what God has done for us. Those are our two points today. So I want you to just take a moment, and I'll, and I'll give you a little bit of time to do that. Underline what's true of us and circle what God has done for us. So take a moment to look at the book. I'll give you a little bit of time. Underline what's true of us. Circle what God has done for us. Okay, I wonder what you found. You can keep doing that even as the sermon goes on. Maybe more things come to mind. But I do wonder what you underlined and what you circled. I also want to highlight the importance of 
regularly looking at the text by yourself for yourself. It's good to study in community, but don't miss the impact that the Word of God has on our hearts during our own devotional times. The Bible is the primary means God speaks to us today. Well, let's start with the first point. Number one, what's true of us? These are the things you would have underlined in the text. Now, in this passage, God has also done some things for us. Those are the things you've circled. But to truly and fully appreciate what he's done, we need to understand the context. So first, Paul says several things about us. I wonder how many you found and underlined. There are at least four obvious ones. Then there's an implied fifth one at the end, maybe even more. Well, first, the beginning of verse 6, the beginning of our passage for while we were still weak. Not only weak, but still weak. A state of helplessness, unable to rescue ourselves. I'm reminded of the stories from the Titanic. Great ship that sunk. Some survived, but over 1,500 perished that day. There weren't enough lifeboats. People were struggling to swim or hold on to a piece of the ship, but they eventually died, helpless to save themselves, drowning or dying first of hypothermia from the cold waters. Spiritually, we're weak. Spiritually, we're helpless. Spiritually, we are unable to help ourselves or to save ourselves. Look at the end of verse 6. We'll skip over what God did for now, but look at who he did it for. Who? The, the ungodly, the ungodly. Did you underline that one? Not a good start for us here in the passage. God has done something for us while, number one, we were still weak. Number two, ungodly. Well, maybe you are sitting here and you might argue, well, I'm a godly person, or at least I'm, I'm not that bad. I've not murdered Anyone, I've not committed some big crimes, but don't forget earlier, Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul is very careful to say all, all means in the Greek, all. It means everyone. All have sinned. No one is exempt from this. Each of us has the same sin-sick heart that beats in our chest. Heaven doesn't rate sins. It doesn't rank sinners as if there's a cutoff that if you're higher above that cutoff, you get entrance into heaven because you've sinned less or because you've been a good person or done so and so things. No, even the smallest sin you could think of right now from your seat is still sin and renders you helpless before a holy God. Now, j jump down to verse 8. Earlier, we were still weak. Did you catch this one? When God acted for us, we were still sinners. We've departed from God's standards. We've missed the target. We've missed the mark. Rebelled against him. Well, a fourth thing, and we're clearly going downhill here. The beginning of verse 10. For if while we were enemies... Now take these four things together, still weak, ungodly, still sinners, now enemies. In a way, enemies summarizes the first three descriptions of us because we were weak, because we were ungodly and sinners, we were actually enemies of God. 
It's not that we didn't like him just a little bit. It's that we were hostile towards him. Hated him. We hated his ways. We resented God's authority. Adam and Eve's story in the garden there in Genesis is our story. But the hostility is not only one-sided. Yes, we oppose God, but what is Paul saying in our text? Well, Paul is saying that God is also opposing us. And there's nothing we can do about it. This is called the total depravity of man. No way to undeprave ourselves. Notice something about the descriptions of us in our passage. We were still weak. We were still sinners. We were enemies. What do you notice about those descriptions? We were, we were, we were, all in the past tense. This is who we were before God did something to you and for you. Now, you may have noticed one more thing about us in verse 11. It's that we're also a joyful people. We're ones who rejoice in God. Five things about us, still weak, ungodly, still sinners, God's enemies. But then in verse 11, but now we rejoice. We're a people who are actively rejoicing. This is an incredible transformation. Now, when I was a child, my favorite toys were Transformers. They've made movies later, so maybe all of you know Transformers. There's more than meets the eye. We actually still have my favorite Transformer in my house. It still shoots fiery sparks out of its mouth, just like it did almost 40 years ago. Now, a Transformer can transform from a human-like robot into a car, a truck, a helicopter, a plane. It can transform in a matter of seconds, a complete transformation. Well, here's the question. Well, how about us? How has God transformed us from weak, ungodly sinners who are enemies of God, verses 6 through 10, into a present state of joy? How does God transform us from sinful enemies in hostility towards him into rejoicing? Well, that's the question, and that's the second point of our text. And those are the things you circled as you read the word earlier this morning. So point number two, what God has done for us. We've seen what's true of each of us. Now number two, we're going to see what God has done for us. And we're going to spend more time here, praise God, in this second point than we did in the first point. So these are all the circles. If you were like me when you did this, you have quite a few circles in just these six Verses. So let's take them in order from verse 6 on down through verse 11. So verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, and here's the first thing I circled, Christ died for the ungodly. The first reality which leads to joy, the joy we see in verse 11, is that Christ died. And who did he die for? The ungodly. Ones who were still weak. At the right time, probably designates the time appointed by God to effect the work of salvation. It was God's planned time. Christ didn't die when we were good or godly enough. We were even worse. 
We were his enemies. It's a big deal to die for an enemy. Uh, Paul says this himself. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps, maybe, for a good person, one would even dare to die. Now, what does Paul mean here? Well, I read a story from a devotional book about the Revolutionary War between the U.S. and, and Great Britain, between the U.S. and the British. There was a faithful pastor in the U.S. at that time named Pastor Peter Miller. His neighbor hated him for his Christian faith. He, was, he violently ridiculed him. He mocked him. He made fun of him. He made life miserable for Pastor Peter and all of his followers. Now, one day, this unbelieving neighbor, this mocking neighbor, was found guilty of treason, and he was sentenced to death. Pastor Peter heard the news, and immediately he set out on foot to intercede for his neighbor's life before General George Washington. The general listened to this pastor, but said, there's no way I can pardon your friend. Pastor Peter responded, my friend, my friend, excuse me, General, he's not my friend. He is, in fact, my greatest living enemy. Well, the story goes, and I hope it's true. I don't know if it is true, but the story goes that General Washington was stunned and said, what are you talking about? You walked 100 kilometers by foot to save the life of your friend. Wait, to save the life of your enemy? You walked all that way? Well, the story goes that Washington changed his heart and granted the request. And with the pardon in hand, Pastor Peter, he hurried over to the scaffold where his neighbor was being prepared for execution. When the man saw Pastor Peter, he said, Old Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by watching me hang. He must have been astonished as Pastor Peter walk through, step through the crowd to hand over the pardon. His neighbor was free. His life was spared. Well, back to Romans here. Paul makes a point with his analogy. Rarely will someone die for a righteous person. This is someone we might respect, maybe a religious leader, maybe one who just looked good on the outside, but a respectable person. For a good person, Paul says, eh, this is probably a nice person, maybe someone you have affection for, maybe someone you even love. For that type of person, maybe we'll die for them. But for an enemy? Now, old Pastor Peter's story, it's inspiring. He walks 100 kilometers. He talked to the general. He saved a life. But that's not really a good gospel illustration, is it? It doesn't really show the extent of what Christ has done. Christ didn't just leave a house here on earth, walk 100 kilometers from one town to another town to petition. No, Christ left heaven. Christ came to earth, not petitioning for an enemy, but laying down his life for his enemies. Christ left heaven and came to earth to die for his enemy. If Pastor Peter took the hanging for his neighbor, we'd get a little closer to the gospel, but even that would just be one man dying a physical death for another. Even that's not the gospel. Jesus said far more, as we've already sung this morning and as we'll see in just a moment, that he faced the full wrath of God. 
that all the sins of all the people from all times were placed on Jesus there on the cross. It wasn't just a mere physical death. Far worse than that was the spiritual death, was the death facing the wrath of God. That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus did far more. Look at verse 8. But God, and here it is, shows his love for us. Again, we might expect him to show love for us because we've shown love for him. But look at what the text says. It doesn't say that. It says he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, circling these observations is helpful. We see the theme of death again. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, Christ died while we were still sinners, still. Maybe you marked that word somehow too. I don't know, with a triangle, a square, still. It shows up twice. Verse 6, verse 8, as you read the Bible, as you see certain words repeated, that's a key to understanding the passage. Right here we have the word still come up twice. Still, Christ died for us while we were still weak, while we were still sinners. It positions us that are present state when Christ saved us is that while we were still weak, not strong, while we were still sinners, not sinless, it means God came to us at our worst, unchanged from birth. We're born into sin. It's called imputed sin. We're born into sin and every day of our lives we continue on in sin. We know as parents, whether we're a parent or we just know parents, we know that parents don't have to teach their children how to sin, do they? No one has to teach a, a, a four-year-old how to sin. No matter how cute your four-year-old is, no one has to teach your four-year-old how to throw a fit when he or she doesn't get that ice cream cone that they want. You don't have to teach your children to have temper tantrums. You don't teach your children how to talk back to you. They just do. You don't have to teach your children how not to share their toys. As they grow up, grow up tweens and, and teens continue in sin. As adults, we continue in sin. All of us were born into sin. It's the one thing we bring into the world. It's our sin. And we're powerless to change. Verse 9, more of what God has done. Since therefore, we get some good news here. We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we, we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I just alluded to this. There's lots of circles here. A couple of actions by God, justified by his blood. That refers to the death of Christ, the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. The Bible also talks about being justified by faith. Remember Romans chapter 4 that we studied. And we saw these great examples of faith, David and Abraham. And then we see Sarah as well. The Bible says we're justified by his blood. The Bible says we're justified by faith. What do, what do we think about those two things? Certainly we are justified by faith. That's not wrong. Both of those are true. But right here, right in this verse, we get at the very heart of the gospel. We're not justified by faith as if faith is some kind of work. We're saved by Christ. Salvation is 100% the work 
of God. It starts and ends with God. We don't even contribute 0.00001% towards our salvation. It's not as if God does 99.99999% and we do that last little step. No, salvation from the beginning all the way on to the end is 100% the work of God. Now, one author puts it this way. Faith is merely the hand of the beggar receiving this gift from the hand of God. We're, we're beggars. We're even receiving the gift of faith. Even faith is a gift. Well, what's the next thing you circled? Probably right there in the second part of the verse. We're saved by him from the wrath of God. This is God's holy hatred of sin. God is holy and we are sinners. Impossible to reconcile. Holiness and sinfulness cannot go together. As soon as sinfulness is in the presence of holiness, that one who is holy ceases to be holy. And so there is now a separation. There is a gulf between the holy God of the universe and sinful men and women. There's no hope unless God does something. And he did. He did. Yes, we're saved from sins, but we're actually saved, and don't miss this, we're actually saved from God himself. God saves us from God. God saves us from God. The final judgment won't fall on us because it's fallen on Jesus. Notice the wording here, now. Now we've been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved? The second part there, it's looking into the future. Our salvation is done. That's looking into the past. We look back at the cross. We look at that time when we repented of our sins, placed our faith in Jesus when he unblinded us, when like a, a beggar's hand, we accepted what God had done for us in Christ Jesus. We are saved. Our, our salvation is secure. That's happened in the past. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is done. That has happened. But we see the second part looks into the future. It's an already not yet salvation that we've experienced. We've been saved, but we're also being saved or shall be saved. We're saved by God, but the fullness of our salvation has yet to be revealed. Oh, friends, we're not home yet. We know this because we still sin. Still deal with indwelling sin. We don't have glorified bodies. We're not perfect. The world has fallen. But a day is coming, a day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will, will be revealed. But those who follow Christ will be saved through his life. A better day is coming. And on that day, all will be made new. A final deliverance will come. It's what Paul means when he writes elsewhere, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And so friends, when you woke up this morning, his mercies were new. 
When you wake up tomorrow morning, his mercies will be new again. And each day when we wake up and we revel and marvel in God's new morning mercies, we are one step, we are one day closer to that fullness of salvation when Jesus comes back for his people. We are saved and we are being saved. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, so will we be saved by his life. Again, we see that we were enemies. This time we don't have the English word still, but we have the word while, which means something like still. We were still enemies. We were, and here we have more truths, maybe several that you circled, one after another. One, reconciled to God. Two, by the death of his son. Three, we are reconciled. Four, we shall be saved by his life. All in one verse. Our church, consider the costliness of the gift. This is, this is God's son who gave up his life. Just imagine the greatest gift you could receive. Maybe just greatest gift you could imagine. Maybe just think about the billboards, those adverts as you drive on Shakeside Road, or the adverts and commercials you see on the television. They talk about that car, that promotion, that diamond ring, that new toy, that, that shiny new iPhone 15. Oh, friends, this is Far and infinitely greater. This is God the Father giving His one and only Son to the cross for you. For you. While you were weak, while you were a sinner, while you were an enemy. And because of that, therefore, we have one more thing we can underline about ourselves. Verse 11, more than that, and here it is, we also rejoice in God. Why? Well, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. These are amazing verses, breathtaking verses. I mean, all of Romans is amazing, isn't it? I mean, just every verse, every chapter just keeps getting better and better and better. But look at these verses. This is really the heart of the gospel right here. Redeemer Church, look at the book. And let me leave us with three brief applications as we approach, as we approach the Lord's table in just a few moments. Three applications of these marvelous six verses. Number one, church, we should be a joyful people. Right now, whatever you're thinking, whatever's in your heart, I'm looking at a bunch of you, trying to look at all of you. We should be a joyful People. We talked about this last week. We're no longer enemies of God. We should rejoice. This is an unspeakable joy which comes through reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 11, this is important. This was not a reconciliation we obtained or earned. But the last five words of our passage. We have now received reconciliation. It's in the passive voice. God did it. We received it. What's it? Reconciliation. It's the action of making enemies into friends. 
I read a story this past couple weeks about a man imprisoned 48 years in my home country for a crime, for a murder that he did not commit. Five decades, wrongly accused the prosecution. All those decades ago, they hid evidence from the defense. From the ages, from the age of 22 until 70, this man languished in prison. He's now free to go. I'm sure there's a bunch of mixed emotions as he's left prison, but he has to be a joyful man. The chains are gone. He's been set free, proven innocent. Well, here's the difference with us. We've sung about the chains being gone, but here's the difference with us. Friends, we're guilty. We're guilty. Guilty of murder, guilty of more. In a real sense, each of us each of our sins put Jesus up there on that tree. That man didn't deserve to be in the earthly prison he was, but each of us deserves to be in a spiritual prison much worse. And yet Jesus' death has freed his people from spiritual bondage. That man has a few years left of his life, most likely. But as a follower of Christ... We have an eternity with God. This man's rejoicing was great, but our rejoicing should be infinitely greater. We've been set free from a prison we deserve, not just for, for a few years, but for forever. The joy of our salvation is wonderful because ultimately it trumps our circumstances and our performance. It covers our sorrows. Our lost homes, our lost jobs, hurting bodies, hurting relationships, tough co-workers, tough roommates, tough schoolmates, tough family, our own flesh, our own sin, our own bad decisions. Joy is like an umbrella that covers us from the rain, but it's a perfect umbrella. Our joy covers us up more perfectly. It covers up all of our problems, all of our sorrows, our sins are covered by Christ's blood with the most perfect umbrella. Once an enemy, now we're seated at God's table. Well, this is incredible. Church, we should be a joyful people. Number two, we should be a comforted people. We should be a comforted people. If God has been faithful in the past to save us, he is trustworthy to usher us into eternity when the right time comes. He saved us while we were his enemies. How much more will he save us now that we're his friends? This is, this is such a great hope, isn't it? God's faithfulness in the past is a promise of his faithfulness in the future. God has been faithful and God will be faithful. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, let me find these words here. You can just listen to me. Read them. Romans chapter 8, let me read verse... Oh, 35, and then on to the end of the chapter, I'll read 38 and 39. Listen to what Paul writes of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's going to say, nothing shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Paul is saying nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. I mean, that's unbelievable. And then down in verse 38, 39, for I am sure, no doubt, for I am sure that neither death, not even death, the thing, worst thing that we can imagine, and Paul's saying not even death can separate us, not even death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. If, just in case I've forgotten anything, Paul says. Anything else, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we're saved, if Jesus saved us while we were his enemies, just think about this for a moment. If Jesus saved us while we were hostile towards God, if he didn't turn his face away from us when we were his enemy, when we were at war with him, what could we do now to him while we're at peace to him that would lose that? We were, we were, we were, we were his enemies. Now we're his friends. Church, this should comfort us. Just a few verses back, Romans 8, verse 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Fellow believer, In just a moment, we're going to hold on to the bread, hold on to the cup. We're going to take communion together. When you hold on to the bread and when you hold on to the cup, I want you to rejoice knowing that God is holding you. That God is holding you just as you hold the cup, just as you hold the bread. God is holding you and he will never let you go. He will hold you fast now and forevermore. Even in death, you can be comforted. Just a couple months ago, one of my mentors and heroes, Pastor Tim Keller, passed away. Ten years before his death, he wrote these words. When you face death, you do it with serenity, with peace, because you're going to a friend. Tim Keller died with peace in his heart. Church, there's an amazing comfort in our salvation. God has us forever. God also has us on those hard Monday mornings. Those tough days. The days of grief. Days of loneliness. Pain. Strife. Well, Keller reminds us that reconciliation with God means that criticism doesn't cripple us because we know that we're an even worse sinner than that person knows. But we remember that Jesus died for those sins. Reconciliation with God means that when we feel unlovable to God, we feel like that we've been the worst sinner. Rather than being paralyzed in fear by faith, we see that Jesus died in our place. Reconciliation with God means that when we realize we're a mess, and friends, all of us are a mess, we take comfort that it's sinful messes like us that Jesus came to save. We are a people of joy. We are a people of comfort. And a final, third application, we should be a boastful people. We should be a joyful people. We should be a comforted people. And we should be a boastful people. Now, before you quote me on that. Let me give you some context. Context is important. We actually sung of this earlier. I don't mean boasting in ourselves, but boasting in God. 
boasting of God. Verse 11 says, rejoice in God. Another implied meaning in that phrase, another translation in that word, another meaning is actually the idea of boasting in God. Our response to our reconciliation to God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, is that we are now being saved. We are now ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors of the gospel. Each and every one of us who are believers, we are ambassadors. We are ministers of reconciliation. We boast in God by sharing the gospel. We boast in God by giving him the credit. We boast in God knowing that it's not us who changes hearts, but it's God himself. And so when we share the gospel with someone, when we share this good news of hope with someone and someone believes, you're really not doing anything more than faithfully preaching at a cemetery or a, a graveyard. Now here's what I mean. Think about the last time you visited a cemetery, a graveyard. You see the, the gravestones there. Imagine just preaching to those gravestones. Now, what would happen? Well, nothing would happen, at least to the gravestones or the decaying bodies underneath them. The people are, are, are dead. No matter how eloquent your preaching is, no one is coming to Christ because of your skills. Now, yes, we train pastors at the Gulf Theological Seminary. We want preachers who can accurately and adequately preach the word and certainly we grow as we preach and as you share the gospel in the workplace certainly you get better and better and better as you study God's word as you're a part of this church all that is true friends all that is true but even in your most eloquent gospel presentation it's not you who is saving someone it's not you who is giving life to someone. So even right now, even as I preach, even as I boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's as, as Romans 1 says, it's not Dave Furman who has the power. I've got no power because I have pastor before my name as my title or my, my ministry. This, this, this is God's power. Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Greek. That means to everyone. It's the gospel that has power. So church, here's my boast. Jesus saves. Jesus reconciles. Jesus alone. Christ alone. He died, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. Believe in him. Believe in him and be saved. And fellow Christian, boast in him. Boast of this Jesus. In a few minutes after some fellowship here, you're going to leave this hotel. You're going to go somewhere, maybe home, maybe to lunch, maybe to work. Boast about him at home. Boast about him in your building, in your workplace, in your classroom, on your campus. Boast of him on your airline flight, on your metro ride, on, on the bus, in your taxi. Boast of him on the phone. Boast of him on WhatsApp, on text messages, on voice notes. Boast about Jesus far and boast about Jesus wide. Boast about him to your family. Boast about him to your friends. Boast about him to those who don't like you much and boast about him to those you don't like very much. Boast about Jesus to the least streets. Boast about Jesus to the hard to reach and boast about Jesus to the unreached. Boast to those who are closest to you and boast to that friend you've not been in touch with for some time. Redeemer Church of Dubai, boast about Jesus and boast about him and in him alone. Oh, Redeemer Church of Dubai, yes, 
We are a joyful people. Yes, we are a comforted people, but we are also a boastful people, boasting in God for changing our hearts and boasting in God that he has the power to raise dead hearts and to give them life. Oh, friends, this is good news. And as we approach that cup and that bread that we're about to hold, and we're about to remember, we're about to rejoice, we're about to celebrate what he's done, let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that these descriptions of us believers are in past tense. Thank you that through Christ's death, we've been reconciled to you. And that the last thing in our passage is that in the present, we rejoice in our salvation. We're comforted that you will never let us go. May we boast of Jesus today and every day. For Jesus died while we were still weak, still sinners, still ungodly, still enemies. Father, you've been so, so good to us. Would we be a joy-filled church celebrating your grace for today, tomorrow, and for all eternity? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.